Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Well, good evening, church. Today we're taking some time to consider and acknowledge Good Friday as part of Holy Week leading up to Easter. And it's interesting where Holy Week falls for us this particular year as we are continuing to face this coronavirus pandemic. Just this past weekend, the United States Surgeon General warned that this week we are living in what will be one of the hardest and saddest week of most Americans' lives. See, whether we like it or not, wrestling with suffering and being confronted with death is simply unavoidable right now. And I think that presents us with a unique opportunity today. As we step into the suffering and the death of Jesus, what we're specifically remembering on Good Friday, we can do so today maybe with a fresh perspective and maybe a different set of urgencies than we would without this situation unfolding. It was C.S. Lewis who wisely observed that we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, there is something about seasons of trial and suffering and even death that drive us to the throne of God to look for help in our time of need. It awakens us to what we have needed all along and maybe missed. And Good Friday reminds us that we worship and serve a God who both suffered for us and with us as our great Redeemer and Savior. Maybe our present circumstances will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts in new ways to this event and the implications it has for our lives. So what I want to do in our time together is look at the account of the crucifixion from the Gospel of Luke. And this is what I think Luke's account is going to teach us. The cross was God's divine plan to overthrow evil and to accomplish salvation for us in Christ. The cross was God's divine plan to overthrow evil and to accomplish salvation for us in Christ. And as we'll see, Luke is drawing our attention to the layers of the story that are happening at the crucifixion. He's giving us the play-by-play of the events that are physically taking place as Jesus is killed on the cross. But at the very same time, he's trying to pull back the curtain, so to speak, for his readers to see that God's sovereign hand is behind all of this. Let me put it to you this way. Have you ever been a part of something where more was going on than you realized at the time? For example, think about everything that goes into a wedding proposal for those of you who have been involved in one. When I proposed to my now wife, all that she knew we were doing that day was going on a nice date that I'd planned. But behind the scenes, a bunch of other things were at work. I'd set up a nice picnic for us. We were going to do a puzzle together. I had the ring around the last piece of the puzzle in my pocket. But I had strategically placed friends and family nearby who were hidden so they could take pictures so we could have the moment captured. 
And we were on a time crunch. In hindsight, a puzzle probably was not the wisest idea in light of that. My dear wife was blissfully taking her time and enjoying our day together. Uh, and that's because she was unaware of the bigger story at play until I popped the question. You see, there were layers to the story that were only to be revealed later to her. Well, in an infinite way, there is more going on here in this story than just a physical crucifixion. And I want to tease that out in our first point, the cosmic plan of the cross. If I could set the scene here for a moment, Jesus has been betrayed. He has been arrested. His disciples have abandoned him. Peter has denied him three times. He's been mocked and beaten by the religious authorities and the Roman rulers, and he has been sentenced to death by crucifixion. Our section here in Luke opens with Jesus being raised up on the cross in between two criminals at the place of the skull. And Luke, as as all the gospel writers and all the scriptures make clear, is indicating that Jesus was a completely innocent man in all of this. But in the face of this horror and this injustice, Jesus looks at those who are crucifying him in verse 34, and he says this. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an incredibly gracious statement from our Savior. In the face of all that's taking place, he offers forgiveness, but it's also a confusing statement. What does it mean that they don't know what they do? After all, don't they know exactly what's happening in this moment? Well, in one sense, those responsible for crucifying Jesus, they do know exactly what they are carrying out in this moment. Thousands of people were crucified around the lifetime of Jesus by the Roman Empire. For Pilate, for the Roman soldiers who were overseeing all of this, for all who had their hands in the events that were just described, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were performing an execution meant to shame the person being crucified and to send a message to all who might see the criminal hanging from the cross, don't follow in their footsteps, otherwise you might end up here too. You see, in that sense, they know exactly what they're doing. But in a far greater, and a far grander sense, they truly did not know what they were doing. And that's because they're completely unaware of all of the divine orchestration that has been leading to this moment. You see, all the way back at the beginning of our scriptures, there is an ancient promise given in Genesis chapter 3. Right after Adam and Eve sin, the world becomes corrupt and fallen and broken. God gives a curse to the serpent. He says in Genesis 3.15, To the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, God promises from the beginning of the story that there will be this mysterious mutual afflicting between these two parties, these two offspring. But the serpent, his offspring, will only get in a heel shot, while the promised Messiah figure, the offspring of the woman, will land a head shot to win this strife once and for all. Well, for those who are crucifying Jesus, they're making a statement that they are putting an end to his movement. They are stopping it in its tracks. But what they don't realize, what they can't realize, is they are involved in an ancient conspiracy. They are participating in the work of the enemy who is attempting to thwart the plans of the Messiah. But here is the good news on this Good Friday, even more so 
They don't realize that God is taking this evil and He is flipping it upside down. He is turning it over for good. They're unaware that though they've had a hand in the death of Jesus, this death is actually that mutual affliction promise coming to fruition. That in this death, the head of the evil one will be decisively and definitively dealt with once and for all. And this is what God does, brothers and sisters. Evil will not thwart his plans. Instead, the evil will be turned upside down and God will use it for good in his mysterious providence. And isn't that a good reminder for us right now? See, there is a great sense where they indeed have no idea what they are doing. But in all of this, they are not innocent bystanders. Jesus is still offering forgiveness. Yes, this was God's divine plan but they are culpable for their actions and their part in this injustice. And there is a sense where we, you and I, are guilty right alongside them. You see, the reason why Jesus had to go to the cross, the reason why there was that mutual afflicting that was promised was because of sin. And all of us are co-conspirators in this way. Here's how Peter puts it in his letter. He says, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, Peter indicts you and I. It is our sins that led Jesus to the cross. The cross is where God's righteous judgment on sin is dealt with As Jesus bears our sin, dies in our place, taking our condemnation so that we might be saved and forgiven. You see, the cross is Jesus looking at them in that moment and looking at us in this moment and graciously and mercifully saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Well, the next thing I want to focus our attention on in regards to this unfolding cosmic plan is the mocking statements that are made by those who are witnessing this crucifixion. Over and over again in the section that was just read, the onlookers and the soldiers and even one of the crucified criminals looks at Jesus and they essentially say this, if you're really the Christ, if you are the chosen one, if you're the Messiah, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself, save yourself. By this, they mockingly mean, come down from the cross. Show off to everyone that you really are who you say that you are, that you are the Son of God. Showcase your power for all to see. But here's the thing. The soldiers, the rulers, the crowds who were gathered there, they all assumed that crucifixion meant that Jesus is not really who he thinks he is. The very reality of Jesus hanging on that cross was an indication to the onlookers, this can't be the Messiah. This can't be the Christ. This can't be the King, the chosen, anointed one of God who is to save the world. Which is why they mockingly put the description over top of him, King of the Jews. The other gospel accounts tell us that they adorn Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe that is meant for royalty. This is all to shame him and to show that a true king would never end up in this situation. But the divine irony of all that is taking place here is that they are actually participating in the coronation of Jesus as the king of all kings. In God's cosmic plan, the cross was precisely where this was headed all along. 
But for the kingdom that Jesus is bringing to be ushered in, he couldn't save himself in the way that they were taunting. Because his kingdom and the coronation of him as king was ushered in through the crucifixion, not by avoiding it. You see, brothers and sisters, none of this was happening by accident. This was the cosmic, mysterious, divine plan of God to rescue and redeem a lost and rebellious humanity and for sins to be atoned for once and for all. That's why Jesus couldn't save himself by coming down off that cross. To save himself in this way would be no salvation for anyone else. Consider what D.A. Carson says. He says, Jesus could not save himself, not because of any physical constraint, but because of a moral imperative. He came to do his Father's will, and he would not be deflected from it. It was not nails that held Jesus to that wretched cross. It was his unqualified resolution out of love for his Father to do his Father's will. And within that framework, it was his love for sinners like me. He really could not save himself. When we truly grasp this, it's the most humbling thing in the world. Because we realize that we have had a hand in this horrible injustice because of our sin. But simultaneously, it's the most powerful declaration of God's love that we could ever possibly have. Because Jesus, Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, willfully went through the suffering and death that he went through in his crucifixion, all out of love for you and me. Listen, we're in the midst of a world of brokenness and suffering and death. But the cross tells us that we cannot look at God and say, you obviously don't care. We don't have all the answers of how his sovereignty overlaps with the wrestlings of this world, but the cross definitively tells us Jesus loves us so much he got involved in the story and he died in our place. It's the most humbling and the most powerful picture all at the same time. This is the cosmic plan of the cross. But secondly, Luke also draws our attention to the completed work of the cross, Luke wants to emphasize that something is actually being accomplished at the death of Jesus. This was not merely the death of a religious prophet or a martyr or dreams of a new kingdom coming in shattered. No, something is actually happening. Look at what begins to happen in the text as this comes to a close. After these events take place, the text says, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour that the sun's light failed and darkness covered the land. In the way that they counted time, this is telling us that from 12 noon until 3 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon, when the sun is at its brightest, completely failed, and it was dark. And this darkness in the middle of the day is meant to be a sign of the divine judgment that is taking place on Jesus as he hangs on that cross. The righteous, divine judgment of God is being poured out on Christ so that it won't be poured out on you and me. Jesus was condemned for us in our place so that now we can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Darkness covers the land. Secondly, Luke tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
Now, when you hear curtain, don't associate this with a curtain you bought at Ikea or Target to cover a window in your bedroom. This curtain that he's referencing separated the most holy place of the temple off from the rest of the temple complex. And this curtain was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. The only person who could ever access this most holy place behind this curtain was the high priest. And that high priest could only access the most holy place behind the curtain once a year to atone for the sins of the people and offer sacrifices in their place. But as Jesus is crucified, Luke tells us that the temple of the curtain is torn in two. All the way down there now is a tear through that massive barrier to God's presence. The message of this act is this. Because of our sin, we could not access God's presence. You were barred from entering. This has been true since the Garden of Eden when they were kicked out of God's presence because of their sin. This is what that giant curtain represented. But now, because of Jesus' crucifixion, what stood as a visible and literal barrier between God and humanity is ripped right down the middle. The curtain is torn in two so that we are no longer barred from God's presence. But now we have access. So Luke says there is darkness and no condemnation now. There is access where once there were barriers. And then lastly, at the death of Jesus, people begin to be changed. People begin to be changed. As Jesus is dying and breathes out his last, he says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. This scene shifts from mocking and slander and blasphemy to a recognition that something eternity-altering just happened. The hardened Roman centurion glorifies God and acknowledges that Jesus is innocent and righteous. The mocking crowd now leaves beating their breasts, a sign of remorse and confusion. And then one of the criminals, which by the way, sometimes we translate criminals as thieves, but mere theft does not land you on a cross. These were likely violent insurrectionists who were trying to overthrow the government and the establishment and usher in a new kingdom. One of these criminals acknowledges his own sin. As the other criminal rails and literally in the Greek blasphemes Jesus, the other one says, no, 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 we are suffering justly for what we have done. He acknowledges his sin. And then next, he confesses the truth about Jesus. He asks Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, acknowledging that he really is king. And here's the thing. Rather than dying in his sin, this criminal died to his sin because he put his faith in Jesus. Even at the last hour, even with his track record, he doesn't die in his sin. He dies to his sin. Jesus assures this man, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, people were changed 2,000 years ago at this death scene outside the gates of Jerusalem. And I want you to know that they are still being changed today by that very same scene. I'm not sure why you're watching this sermon, but I want to tell you this. Whoever you are, whatever has brought you to this place today, we cannot look at the cross and simply shrug our shoulders. The cross demands a response. We live in a world that is full of suffering, evil, and death. 
We feel that right now in an emphatic way. But Christians today call this mangled death scene at the place of the skull Good Friday. And here's what's good about Good Friday. By putting our faith in Jesus, the crucified King, we can confidently proclaim alongside the Apostle Paul that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the good news of Good Friday is that Jesus' death can now be our death. And Jesus' life is now our life. God is in the business of taking evil and turning it upside down for good. And this is good news on our Good Friday. So I want to urge you, wherever you're at right now, turn to the crucified king who loved you and gave himself up for you. He promises that he will welcome all who labor, all who are wearied, all who are heavy laden. He has said, come to me and I will give you rest. May you turn to the crucified king who is offering your soul rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your cosmic divine plan of the cross. We thank you that though it looked like a defeat, though it looked like the end of the movement of Jesus by all accounts, it was the fulfillment of all that had been leading to that moment. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us to the point of shedding your blood in our place. And I pray for all who are watching this today as we consider the cross, as we consider Good Friday, may we find ourselves in you. May we put our faith in you so that we can proclaim, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been made new. There is hope for me in the midst of the brokenness and uncertainty of this world and my own soul. May you give us rest today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.